Welcome to the WEPC Discipleship Podcast, because the gospel changes everything. This week, I'm going to cover uh, the three issues that have more to do with us than with them. Which is why he said, hey, Brandon's going to get up and make you mad this morning. <laughs> I'm going to cover the things that have more to do with us than with them. But real quick, I want to recap um, on the next slide. Yeah, you can just slide your hand across. There it is. Yeah. Uh, in his book, Death to Deconstruction, Joshua Porter argues that there are five things, he calls them the five great predators, that really cause people to fall away from the church. And here's a list of the five. Hypocrisy. Politicized Christianity. Can't you wait for that one? (laughs) Biblical illiteracy. The problem of evil. And the denial of self-denial. Today, I'm going to be covering hypocrisy in the church, a politicized version of Christianity, and biblical illiteracy. And next week, just because we think biblical illiteracy really ties it all together, Joe's going to hit on that one, and he's going to talk about the problem of evil and the denial of self-denial. So, We'll start off with talking about hypocrisy in the church. But I want to talk about what is hypocrisy versus what is struggling well. What do you all think the differences might be? Yeah, how, how, before I go into that, I guess to say, in the church, and that's, you're exactly right. In the church, what does struggling well against sin look like? Repenting. Failing and repenting. Yeah, getting the log out of your own eye. Yeah. What about being open and honest and saying, yeah, this is a problem? Like saying, yeah, this is an issue, and I don't like that I have this problem. How would you define hypocrisy in the church? Yeah, denying your own issues and blaming others. You had a hand up? Don't do what I do, do what I say. I would argue that that statement alone has driven more people away from families and from churches than almost any other. Anyone else? Yeah. Blind to your own sin. Like, I'm great. I don't have a problem here. Yeah, pride. There's, uh, if I can go to the next slide. Here's, here's some ways I've mentioned struggling well. Uh, there's a story uh, that's mentioned in Death to Deconstruction. Uh, after Hurricane Katrina, does anyone know who Brennan Manning was? Okay. For those of you that don't know, uh, he was a writer and itinerant minister um, whose entire focus really in his writing is the love and grace of God. He, he once wrote that there are plenty of people out there who are more than willing to talk about the justice and the righteous wrath of God, and he's glad those people are out there, but he's like, I'm not one of them. That's not what God's called me to talk about. I'm here to talk about the love of God. And we can talk about whether that was a good strategy or not, but that's not the point here. After Hurricane Katrina, he was living in New Orleans, and Christianity Today called him to get his story of what's it been like ministering in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And he shared this story of helping people out of the city, providing food for people who could not get food, just generally like being the image of God in Hurricane Katrina. When they published the story, they published it with an editor's note. The editor's note said, before we ran, or after we had already gotten this ready for publication, Brenning Manning called us. And he told them that when he gave his interview, 
he had been struggling with all kinds of things, depression, self-doubt, you name it, and therefore had fabricated some of the things he had said. And essentially ended by saying, what I'm trying to tell you, what, I, and he, what I'm trying to say is that I lied. None of it was true. And people immediately and understandably got all over him about it. They missed a very important detail in the story. He called to confess. He, he didn't let it go to publication and insist that it was the truth. He said, I did something wrong. I'm sorry. And I think while his, what he did was wrong, that's a powerful example of struggling well. That's a powerful example of I have a problem. Sin is in me too, and I want to do something about it. So we all have sin, and none of us are perfect. We talked about struggling well. is confession, repentance, fighting your sin, and being honest about it. But here's the thing. If you're someone who is walking away from the church because of hypocrisy, even this looks like hypocrisy. Although this is normal. This is good. The Bible encourages this. It doesn't encourage the sin behind it, but it says this is how you deal with it. It will be misconstrued as hypocrisy anyway among this group. But what does real hypocrisy look like? Looks like we talked about, uh, a few of you mentioned that it was the denial that we have any problem. The do what I say, not what I do. We see it in things like corruption in the church, abuse in the church, sex scandals in the church, fraud, immoral, prominent church leaders. And that just doesn't mean like corruption, abuse, and sex scandals. What about the guy who's an elder who's a huge jerk to his waitress when he goes out to eat after church? We see it in racism in the church, casual racism or blatant. The fact that casual racism is a term, by the way, like, <laughs> I just casually hate entire groups of people. I, it's funny, but it's disgusting. Um, or, like, we also see it in espousing teachings that Jesus absolutely would not be behind. We talk about the prosperity gospel. Things that abuse and misconstrue God. That's what hypocrisy can look like in the church. And you see there's a stark difference between hypocrisy and struggling well, right? Stark difference. If we can go to the next slide, please. So I'm going to read this quote uh, from Josh Porter's book. He says, Nurturing long-term anger, resentment, and bitterness over the rampant failure of so-called Christians drives the furious and hurting soul further inward over time. As in, seeing these things drives this person out of community and further into themselves. It says, mad at their parents, at the church that raised them, and at the Christianity of their upbringing, the discontented former Christian draws a convenient floodlight on the failure of everyone else, blinding the embittered to their own failure and inconsistency. So essentially what I've said is their hyper-focus on the hypocrisy of the church, which is a real issue. I'm sure I could ask you guys where you've seen hypocrisy in the church. And if you can't give an example, it's probably because you're being shy. We've all seen it. We all know it exists. 
So they're pointing out a real issue, a real problem, something that really needs to be fixed. But it says, the hyperfocus on hypocrisy puts all the blame on any Christian who makes any mistake. Legitimate hypocrisy does exist, but the one complaining about it uses any example of any Christian failure to prove their point. However, they are conveniently ignoring their own moral failures. While yelling at Christians, and rightly so, I want to again say rightly so, but while condemning Christians over the speck in their own eye, a lot of deconstructionists have missed the log in theirs. You can go to the next slide, please. Hey, y'all want to have some fun? <laughs> Let's talk politics, right? Um, can someone who either has the handout or can see the screen, uh, before we do that, does anyone know about C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters? Can anyone explain to us what the screw tape letters are? For those of you that don't know, and she gave a really good summary, um, the screw tape letters is C.S. Lewis writing from the point of view of one of the head demons in hell to one of his minions, it's actually his nephew in the book, uh, on how to keep someone from either becoming a Christian or once they become a Christian, keeping them from drawing closer to God. So what is encouraged in this book is actually a satire. It's saying, like, it's Lewis saying through a fictional satire piece, this is what Satan does to keep Christians away from God. And so with that being said, uh, can someone who either has the handout or who is close enough to the screen read to me this quote from the screw tape letters? Yeah, he says, let him begin by treating patriotism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part of his religion, provided that meetings and pamphlets and policies and movements and causes and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. Then he, will, he is ours, and the more religious he is on these terms, the more securely ours. Before I jump into talking politics, what I'm going to say is this. I am not up here talking against a particular party or particular positions you may hold. That is not the point at all. What I'm talking about is an attitude. Hold what side you may. Hold what opinions and positions you may. That's not what I'm talking about. Now, when we get into it, you'll see that we'll talk a bit about one side of the aisle more than the other. But that's because of the issue we're talking about. Put another issue up here and we'll be talking about that other side of the aisle more. No one is completely innocent. No one is without sin. No one has kept themselves away from committing any sort of evil in this area. So it's not about that. So let's talk about it. So here's the problem. Uh, I was not around in the 1980s and I came around in like the later half of the 1990s. So this is from like reading and stuff. If you were there and can say otherwise, like feel free. But from what I understand, <laughs> in the 1980s and the 1990s, the view was that the right or the Republican Party could really do no wrong. They were the party of God, the party of the gospel. Here's what I mean when I say like we're going to be talking about one party a little bit more. Uh, like I said, this is not anything to do with that party being evil or wrong or the devil or nothing. It's just saying when it comes to this issue, there's been a push from this direction. That's all. 
Um, so this reaches to a point where uh, post 9-11, there is an interview, or not an interview, it was a debate between, I think, Reverend Jesse Jackson and J uh, Jerry Falwell. Uh, and they were talking about how do we handle the Middle Eastern issue. Uh, and Jackson was arguing that going to Iraq in the first place was a mistake. And Falwell was saying, absolutely no, it's not. Again, the points they're making are not the point here. Because what ends up happening is Jackson says something about, what about peace? And Falwell says, yeah, that sounds great, but we can't have peace right now until we blow them away in the name of God. You see, the issue was not necessarily, should we have been in Iraq, should we have not? I was like, seven? I don't know. <laughs> the issue is that this was an attitude that he represented, but that he was not alone in. And let's talk about how 2021 was a really confusing year for me with all the Let's Go Brandon bumper stickers. <laughs> when it first happened, I was like, this is so encouraging. <laughs> and then I realized what it was, and I was like, this is really not encouraging at all. Uh, for those of you that don't know what Let's Go Brandon means, uh, I assume you know what the F word is. I'm not going to use it. But it was essentially stood for F. Joe Biden. And I don't care what your opinion is about Joe Biden. Have one. Please. Please have. And I can explain. If you want to know how that came about, it was, it was silly. But uh, if, if, you, if you don't like Joe Biden, that's fine. I'm not saying you have to be like gung-ho, let's vote for him every election. If you love Joe Biden, that's fine too. You can vote for him all you like. The thing is, this is not an attitude Christians should have. This is not the mindset. Mindset. <laughs> I was going with should and mindset in the same sentence. That's a new word. New word we learned. This is not. This is not the mind of Christ that Paul encourages. This is not the mind of Christ that Paul encourages. I've seen. Uh, I, please excuse me if this is offensive. It should be. It bothered me. Um, I've seen vehicles with the Pray for America bumper sticker and a bumper sticker that says Joe and the Ho got to go. Can salt water and fresh water come from the same spring? Can blessing and cursing come from the same mouth, brothers and sisters? I tell you, this should not be. And growing up where I grew up in southwestern Virginia... Love my hometown. I absolutely love my hometown. There was so much of this. So much of this. And I could see it pushing friends away from Jesus. And we'll talk about it in the next slide. But when you believe this represents the entire right side of the aisle, and it doesn't. It does not. But when all you see is this from the right side of the aisle and you believe that Christianity is synonymous with being a Republican, why wouldn't you walk away? It ignores Bible passages like Titus 3, 1 through 2, which says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, 
and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This isn't me being an easily offended liberal at all. This is biblical. This is what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 through 4 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desired all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So i got to check to see how I'm doing on time. Oh, we're great. We're good. Um... Do you know what the government was like to Christians when these passages were written? Anyone want to elaborate for us what that government was like? Oppressive. Brutal. That's 1 Timothy. You know, in 2 Timothy, Paul has pretty much accepted the fact that his government's about to kill him. I'm not saying we have a great government. I don't want to preach lies. I'm not saying we have a great government, but I have not had my government trying to behead me. If that's their attitude towards a government that is actively antagonistic and wants them dead, then I would dare say we can have a little bit better of an attitude towards ours. That doesn't mean liking them and thinking that it's a great government, but it does mean praying for our leaders. And it does mean not speaking ill and putting bumper stickers like that on our cars. If I can go on one more little tangent. What does that say to people who aren't even Christians when they see both those bumper stickers on a car? That screams hypocrisy in and of itself. Well, what I was talking about is earlier I saw, excuse me, let me back up. I mentioned that I had seen uh, someone who had both bumper stickers, one that was a Pray for America that from CBN, and then a uh, Let's Go Brandon bumper sticker. It was the Joe and the Ho Gotta Go one. Like, I assume if you have a Pray for America sticker, I'm going to assume you at least have some sort of identity well, those, with the Christian faith. Those who read it will assume you do. Yeah. yeah. And there, there will probably be... There will probably be a multitude of people driving around with that bumper sticker that aren't Christians. And they'll do what they do, and that's not who I'm talking about. That, that's, that's not the issue at all. Uh, if we go to the next slide, please. Our deconstructionists have seen this, and they have rejected it. Uh, Josh Porter writes, The angry reactionary deconstruction mentality believes that to claim Christianity is tantamount to becoming an active member of the Republican Party and the NRA. Once again, I am not saying there's anything wrong with being a member of the Republican Party or a member of the NRA. I'm just saying it's not the same thing. Uh, he goes on to say, these angry reactionary deconstructists, instructionists, the deconstructionists insist that God needs saving from the elephants, and the only way to rescue him is to send him to the donkeys. Do you guys see the problem with that? Here's where I'm saying the problem isn't the party or the politician or the platform, it's the attitude. Who can tell me what's wrong with the fact that God needs rescuing from the donkeys and has to, or from the elephants and has to go to the donkeys? Go ahead. God doesn't need saving Yeah. God doesn't need saving. Last time I checked, it was us. <laughs> also, if you expect your party or your politician, or your platform to save you, you will not be saved. 
I'm not saying these things can't make the world better. I'm not saying there's not good in them. But they will not save this world. They will not save a single soul. When your hope for salvation is in politics, there is no salvation. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. And our trust is that Jesus alone will make this world new. Will save this world. Will fix this world. Will make it what it was supposed to be all along. It won't be who's in office. Now also what I'm not saying is that you shouldn't participate in politics. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote because it doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. I'm saying have your priorities straight and act like a Christian in those priorities. Because when your politics are more important than your Savior, and your attitude clearly reflects that, not only is that driving people out and keeping people away, it's also killing you. Yeah, exactly. Our old, like you said, the sovereignty of God is active in all this, in everything, really. That's what sovereignty is. But, like, that's where our trust and our hope are found. Does our attitude reflect that? Does our attitude show the deconstructing Christian, or even the non-Christian, that, hey, like, I have my opinions, and I've cast my vote, and I stand by it, but I know ultimately that what saves me is Jesus, and that's what matters more? Or does it say, if you aren't one of us, you can't be with us? Like, let's be honest and say that our media corporations and our news outlets do publish and report what will get the most views because that's how they make their money. And the average, everyday, quiet American casting their vote and respecting their neighbors is not going to get clicks or views or it's not going to sell newspapers. So, yeah, there probably is absolutely a level of this. But to the same point, um, the guy that wrote that book, was growing up in the 90s. And yes, media was still around in the 90s. I'm not trying to be like, media is new. And I'm not trying to be, say media corruption is new either. But the level of media that Gen Z and a lot of millennials are consuming now uh, wasn't around then. But there are testimonies to say that while that problem may not have been as big at that point in time, it was still a problem. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question? And I think you're absolutely right. I think the level of what we're viewing on our content feeds on our social media sites probably is contributing to how bad we think this issue is compared to how bad it is. But the fact is that it still exists and so it's worth talking about. And that's one of the reasons I say it's not a party issue because that's like you said, the Democrats in New York City in the 90s from your own experience were doing the same thing. It's not a party issue. It is 100% an attitude and who do we trust in issue. And how do we represent the one we trust in? That's the issue here. Um, if we could go to the next slide. Uh, let's talk about biblical illiteracy. Um, I want you to take just a few minutes, like five, ten minutes, with a small group around you and discuss this question. What is the Bible? All right, hey guys. First of all, like, let's pat ourselves on the back and breathe a sigh of relief. The political talk is over. Let's all just be, whew, that's over. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about an easier subject, right? What's the Bible? Truth, the inerrant word of God, a love story, okay? A lot of descriptive as compared to prescriptive. That's good. 
Living and active and relevant today. That's good stuff too. I saved this one for last, partly because Joe's going to talk about it next week, uh, and partly because I think it's the biggest one and the most important one. And that's why we're covering it a little bit over two weeks. This is potentially the most important issue in deconstruction. And I'll explain why as we go along. If we can go to the next slide. How many of you understood the Bible when you first read it? How many of you the first time you picked up a Bible was like, oh yeah. Yeah. That was my next slide. How many of us are, are you know, doing great on it now as far as like perfect understanding? I know that as we grow older and as we get further into this, this is what I'm praying for myself as I grow older, is that we, we, we begin to grasp it a little better. But how many of you can say when you pick up that book in your hands, and I'm going to Billy Graham this and just... Um, how many of you can say when you pick up this book in your hands, you're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, you get, you get it more than you once did. And the idea is as we grow in our faith, we get it more and more. But I cannot name for you one person that has mastered this book. That's the book you never finish until you meet the author face to face. I've also heard Charles Spurgeon say that, uh, not heard him, he's dead. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I read a Charles Spurgeon quote that he once said, that, and I'm paraphrasing, that this is the Bible is only so long. You'll eventually read it all, but it's infinitely deep. You'll never get to the bottom of it. And so because of that, we need people to help us understand it. We need pastors. We need elders. We need teachers. We need people who've been walking in the faith longer than we have. If any of you want to give me a Bible lesson after this, wait till the service is over. But yeah, like I need people who've been in it longer so I can understand it better. We all need that. We have our own personal time in the Bible, and we should. We have our own prayer time with the Bible, and we should. And we pull out what we can from the Bible, and we should. But we need some help along the way. And the Bible is best learned and interpreted in the community of believers that we call the church. And that's not just West End Presbyterian Church, although I, I phenomenal church. And I'm not saying that because I'm here and talking to members. But in three years of being here, this church has adopted me and made me one of its own so quickly. And I say that almost as a thank you. But I mean the church universal. The Bible-believing, Christ-affirming, Jesus-following, God-worshipping church of all the world throughout all time. That's how we learn the Word of God. Next slide, please. So, as we go into that, I want us to consider two verses. The first one, Matthew 4, 9 says, And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Isn't that just such an encouraging verse? How many of you sense the trap? <laughs> Do I know what's wrong with that? Not with the verse. Like it's, The verse itself is fine. But what's wrong with using it like I just did? So you out of context. Who knows who's speaking right here? It, it's Satan. <laughs> that is Satan tempting Jesus. That is so far out of context. 
The next verse, Psalm 137.9 says, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Um, I'm not even going to try to come up with a lesson for this one. <laughs> that verse needs to be put back into its context. We have so many people today that want to cherry pick a verse or two and make a point. Verses are in context for a reason. The first one, as we said, is the story of Satan tempting Jesus to fall away. The second one is a poem. The second one is a poem where Israel is in captivity in Babylon, and they've seen terrible things done to their children, and they say, blessed is the one who does the same thing to you. It's not God saying, blessed is the people who kill children. It's God saying, or not God saying, it's the people of Israel saying, I want what's been done to us to be done to you. Uh, that's why it's important to keep things in context. So I, I mentioned that. Well, the first lesson I, uh, I teach kids who come to faith in Jesus through young life, the first thing I sit down and teach them is how to interpret the Bible. Not that they're going to get everything for themselves, but how they can spot something that's not quite right. So if we're meant to learn this in community, we're meant to learn this in the church, we're meant to learn this from people who've been following longer than we have, what happens when the person who's teaching us doesn't know what they're talking about either? That they think they know, but they don't. And I'm not condemning that person. They might not know that they don't know. They might have had the same thing happen to them. There are a few results Legalism is one of them that brings the Bible down to just a set of rules and regulations. Believe this, don't believe that, do this, don't do that. And don't get me wrong, that's in there. The Bible tells us what we ought to believe. And the Bible tells us what kind of people we ought to be. But if you reduce it to just that, you've missed the whole point. It doesn't understand the biblical genres and claims. We talk about how it's different genres. This is the kind of interpretation of the Bible that when Jesus says, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, that's the kind of person that says, yeah, sure, and doesn't realize Jesus is using hyperbole to make a point. Hyperlegalism. Or it makes secondary doctrines primary. Does anyone know the difference between secondary doctrines and primary doctrines? Yes, please. Well, that's a good example. I would say uh, beyond baptism, because I think baptism is super important, and I do, you do too. But like, should we baptize infants or not? That's more secondary. Salvation, how are we saved? That's primary. <laughs> this type of thinking and misunderstanding the Bible often makes secondary things more primary. For example, I was, went to a church in college, and I was trying to find a church where I was settling in, and I heard this pastor, his Excuse me. His sermon had nothing to do with this statement. But it's the only statement I remember from the, the sermon. He makes a comment about baptism, stops the sermon, says, and by the way, you're only baptized if you went all the way under the water, and went back into his sermon. <coughs> I have no idea what the sermon was. I grew up in a Methodist church. We poured water on people's heads and said it was good. What he had just done was take something sec secondary and made it a primary thing. And that pushes people away as well. Not understanding what's most important and what 
I'm sorry, not understanding what's most important and not understanding the things that have been debated and left to interpretation over thousands of years. There are things the Bible makes crystal, crystal clear, and we ought not miss them. There are things that good, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, solid Christians over thousands of years have debated back and forth that when we claim we have the absolute answer, we may have the answer, but we've missed the point. And what happens often when people don't understand the Bible is it leads to situations like that. It also explains to things like poorly explained moral contradictions. The Bible says we shouldn't kill people, but David cut his head off, cut off Goliath's head, and that's good. It is. The Bible does say we shouldn't kill people. And the Bible does celebrate the fact that David stood up for Israel. But when we don't explain why those both of those things are true, then people get confused. People get lost. And the last thing where it can go wrong, the Bible as a weapon. I have a kid in young life who told me that every time he does something wrong, his parents quote a Bible verse at him. That's what I mean about the Bible as a weapon. And so, well-meaning people who just haven't been taught well can fall into this stuff. It's so important that we know our Bibles, friends. I would argue that there's almost nothing more important in our entire faith than knowing our Bibles. Knowing our Savior is number one. Knowing Jesus is absolutely the most important things in our faith and in our life. Second to that is knowing the Word that points to Him. Because how do you know Jesus without His description of Himself? And when you mess this up, it hurts people. And here's what it leads to. I think the next slide talks about what it leads to. Yes. It leads to people saying, like, the Bible has been used to hurt me. I don't want it. It leads to, well, this part of the Bible doesn't fit with what I think is right, so I'm going to toss it out. And you begin stripping your Bible little by little, little by little. Do you know Thomas Jefferson uh, published what's called the Jeffersonian Bible and it's pretty much he took out what he didn't think was right and published the rest it's that St. Augustine once said that if you uh, believe the parts of the Bible you like and throw out the rest it's not the Bible you believe but yourself So their response is, instead of the rigidity of ultra-conservatism, and I'm talking theological conservatism, not political. We're over politics. We're done with that. Um, instead of the rigidity of ultra-conservatism, not good conservative Bible teaching, but ultra-conservatism, they see the Bible instead as helpful myths or a record of human experience with God and just take what seems right from it. However, watering down God's word waters down God. What you are left with after watering down the Bible is a watered-down God. When we diminish the Bible, we diminish Jesus. Because we have to admit, and there's a lot of people, and we should rightly love this teaching. When we diminish the Bible, we diminish Jesus. There are parts of Jesus that we should rightly love and affirm. Things where he says, like, take care of the widow and the orphan. Visit those in prison. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Heal the sick. 
and the whole world rejoices and says, yes, I love that. There's also, back to the passage I was talking about earlier, if your eye causes you to sin, rip it out because it's better to go into eternal life with one eye than to hell with both. And this mindset takes one of those teachings and rejects the other and creates a Jesus that saves no one. Creates a God that saves no one. Well, I mean things like there is a good conservative approach to the Bible. Absolutely. And that's what we should be holding. And I'll say that. Like I will say right now that I think liberal theology, not liberal politics, liberal theology is a cancer to the church. I will say that outright right now. But what I will also say is the idea that you have my interpretation and you have my literalist perspective and my extreme focus on these things or you don't get it, that's ultra-conservatism. You can't be a Christian if you smoke and drink. That kind of thing. Yeah, legalism essentially. Yes, please. Legalism would be a good... That's perfect. Thank you. Legalism essentially. So that's what I mean by ultra-conservatism. I'm not talking about good, solid Bible teaching. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, other slide, please. This, this was the next one. Yeah. Okay. No, we're good. That is the next one. However, understanding the Bible, I already said, requires a good Bible teaching and Bible-honoring, God-fearing community. It requires that. And in this rejection... They're pushing away from that. And honestly, in that rejection, more than likely, they're coming from a community that doesn't do that well. And they're saying this toxic community, this bad community right here, this awful community that misuses the Bible represents all of Christianity and represents all Bible teaching. They're painting with very broad brushstrokes. And saying if one group's this way, they're all this way. Uh, there was an analogy. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about heavy metal music, but this was the analogy used in the book, so I'm going with it. It's like when some like uh, suburban teenager who only listens to like what's on the radio buys a Metallica shirt for fashion, and then the Metallica fan throws out all his Metallica stuff because Metallica's been corrupted. <laughs> like, you've missed the point. That's not the entire community. And that's the analogy that was used in the book. That's why I used that one. Um, Something that's important for us to do is to understand the big picture of the Bible, the gospel, and the Savior in the middle of it all. That how do we understand the Bible? We understand its big picture. We understand, as was pointed out before, that it all points to this cross and to the Savior hanging on it. And that's what holds it all together. The Old Testament points to Jesus, and the New Testament explains what he's done and points to him coming again. It's more than rules and regulations. Those are in there. We talked about that. Believe this, believe that, do this, don't do that. It's in there. It's, but what, excuse me, but it cannot be reduced to a checklist that we either follow or reject. It cannot be reduced to, I believe this thing, I did this thing right, I stayed away from this thing, and I avoided this, so I'm good. And it can't be reduced to, I don't like the checklist, so I'm walking away. It's so much more. So much more. It's the story of God's work in our salvation and the Savior that he sent for us. It's the story of a God who saw sinners, 
who saw people who were his enemies, rejecting him, rebelling against him, not wanting them, or not wanting him, and him saying, I love them anyway, and I will bring them home. Its rules and regulations show us the kind of people he wants us to be, not because he doesn't like the other people, but because this is what he made us for. It's believe this and believe that is not a I want you to do what I say as much as it is this is truth. Hold on to it. It's yours. I give it to you. When we make the Bible anything less than that, it's no wonder people don't want it. We can go to the next slide. Here's a quote that I loved from... uh, the Joshua Porter book, it says success for a reader of the Bible isn't referencing random texts for life lessons like an encyclopedia, but a moving backward and forward, long bouts and short sessions, slowly, carefully, with ongoing consideration and new insights as we grow and are shaped by the text itself. One reason that both people become, I'll say biblically illiterate, and that the hyper-legalism that I talked about is one of the same reasons that people reject the Bible altogether. No one wants to take the time to let it form them. We live in a world of Amazon Prime. That item came in two day and Prime promised one. Yeah, I'm done with it. Let me make a phone call. Or like, I want to watch that movie. I can stream it in five minutes instead of going to the store to find it. As soon as movies are out of theaters, they're in streaming services. Remember when we had to wait after they left the theaters for a few months for it to come out on DVD? Or, yeah. Yeah, that. Remember that? I can, I can leave the theater and look at my wife and say, that was a good movie. You want to watch it when we get home? And like, we live in a world that wants everything and wants it yesterday. How in the world can we convince both legalists and deconstructionists to take their time with this book? How can we convince them that the treasure that is buried in there is worth digging for? Because that's where they're both missing. Next slide, please. Here's where I think the biggest hope in deconstruction is. Here's what I think is the biggest encouragement from the deconstruction community. They're calling out things that are legitimate, but because they've missed this, they've missed the point entirely. I've said that a lot today. I think biblical illiteracy is the most dangerous of all the great predators that Josh Porter described. But however, when we understand the Bible and we fall in love with the God who authored it and to whom it points to, then we can hold fast to the faith that that he gives us. When we know the gospel, when we know his word, when we know him, no amount of hypocrisy, no amount of over-politicization in either camp will convince us that he's not worth it. No amount of church scandals, no amount of bumper stickers, no amount of very legitimate things will tell us that he is not worth it. I think when we get our Bible right, and that doesn't mean knowing it 
100% like I can take a test and answer every question and I can explain every passage with perfect accuracy. But when we know it in the sense that we know the God behind it and we live in fellowship with him, we will look at the Bible, or excuse me, we'll look at the hypocrisy and we'll look at the over-politicization of Christianity and we will mourn it and we will hate it, but it will not drive us away. And not because we're so great because we figured it out and because we hold ourselves up, but because the God we have gotten to know sustains us and holds us and takes care of us and says to us, child, I know that's wrong, but stay with me. And stay with those people because they're mine too. And once so were you. You were just like them. I can point to times in my life where I've been the hypocrite. I can point to times in my life where I have over-politicized Christianity. And God was patient with me through it all. My wife could probably point to times where I'm a hypocrite right now. (laughs) And God is with me through it all. I wish there was one particular answer, but one thing I've done with the kids that I'm with is one thing they really want is to know someone cares. And when I show up at their swim meets, when I show up at their baseball games, when I ask them to come do something with me, Young Life calls it earning the right to be heard. And then I say like, hey, You've got some misunderstandings about the Bible. Or they come to me. I had a kid text me the other night at midnight and say, what's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? (laughs) I sent back, go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you either get the opportunity to say like, hey, if you want to know what it is, I can't tell it to you in 10 seconds. But let's talk. I've got a group of three kids that I meet with every week and we're going for the book of John. And they have asked me questions like, doesn't the Bible contradict itself? And I'm like, I'm so glad you asked that. Let's talk about it. And we've derailed into those conversations. And I say derailed only in the sense that we didn't talk about what we were there to talk about. We ended up talking about something more important. The idea is investing in these people. It's not a, I've got the answers to every single deconstruction problem you've got. The reason you're bothered about hypocrisy is you don't know God. No, like the idea, and the time that takes, like I bought you a Bible. That's saying I care about you. That's saying you matter to me. One second. So sorry. I want to hear. Um, That's saying you matter to me. It's taking time for these people. It's not just saying I've got the quick fix, the quick answer. It's I want to be with you. And it's inviting them into that community that interprets the Bible. Be a part of it. You may not agree with it. You may not like it. And that's fine. Be a part of it and you'll learn what it is. Take time for people. Like we can have our fix all quick answers. They won't do a thing. It's when you care about people, when you sit with them. To use the digging analogy, like I teach, I may have a normal size shovel and my kid just has a garden hand shovel, but I can teach them to dig none this, or all the same. And hopefully I'm going to someone that knows how to use a backhoe who teaches me how to dig. If they can only dig a little bit, teach them to dig a little bit. It's better than not digging at all. Um, with that being said, I do need to wrap up. Um, so let me, uh, let me pray for us. And then, uh, thank you guys uh, so much for allowing me, a 26-year-old, to come talk to you about faith. Hopefully, hopefully you learned something from me. Uh, I really enjoyed it, but let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for your word and for your presence and for your bringing us to yourself and that no amount of great predators will pry us from your grasp once you hold us. 
that you keep us safe and secure. Lord, help us to talk to others with grace, with humility, and with love, and investing in them and in their lives to show them the God that has so radically transformed us. Lord, be with us today. Uh, help us to enjoy this day. Uh, and personally, like, let my football team win today. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>